from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I've paid my dues time after time. Here is a 46-yarder to give the Eagles an eight-point lead. Ball is spotted. The kick is away. And the kick is... He's back again. He steps up. He's hit. He stumbles. He is throwing it deep for the end zone, and it is batted around and incomplete. And the game is over. The game is over. The Philadelphia Eagles are Super Bowl champions. Eagles fans everywhere, this is for you. Let the celebration begin. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. And good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We're here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. You can also find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. A lot of people have been following our podcast. And, of course, this is a call-in show. You can join us here on Wharton Moneyball at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, hopefully everybody was following the tweeting I was doing during the game at W Moneyball. And, of course, uh, this is obviously a big day here in Philadelphia. Maybe tomorrow's a bigger day in Philadelphia when we have the big parade coming on. But um, it was quite a Super Bowl. It was quite a Super Bowl for analytics as well because of the choices that were made going forward on certain fourth downs. Uh, you know, uh, many of us were tracking on our phones and other devices win probabilities throughout the game. So first, let me turn it over to my colleagues, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Adi, maybe I'll start with you. Um, since, you know, you are historically not the biggest football fan in the world. I think you've gained an appreciation for football here on Wharton Moneyball. But I know all of our listeners, and by the way, again, I want to remind our listeners, if you want to call in and talk about the Super Bowl, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight sixty six. 942 Adi, what was your reaction to the game, both from a fan's point of view and then also from a statistician's point of view? Well, I'm certainly um, a bit of a fair-weather Eagles fan over the years after living in Philadelphia for a long time. I've, I've essentially jettisoned my Jets, although I'll, I'll return to them if they have any opportunity at well, ever I mean, playing that, again. That, <laughs> that is the New York bandwagon that, way. Oh, my. Yes. Well, yes, indeed. Um, of course it is. But uh, So I went and I enjoyed the game immensely. It was probably the most exciting football game I've ever seen. I recorded my wife on, on video saying, even I'm enjoying this, which is really remarkable because she's never seen a football game before, certainly. In its entirety, and in its entirety, I was in a room full of of eagles, some eagles crazy maniacs, is the right word for them, and uh, and others who are just transplants of Philadelphia, and it was just a riveting game. But it was a victory for mathematics. I liked the and every time there was there was a a tough call like a fourth and one and the forty five Eagles forty five or fourth and one on the goal line. The community was saying kick or punt or exactly the wrong decisions, and I was having to repeatedly renounce that no, the Eagles are doing exactly the right thing. So we've got two hours to talk about that. Um, I want to talk about a couple points in the game, and then I'll turn it over to Shane, obviously our Patriot fan, um, to talk about his reaction to the game. But I want to talk about something that you know we obviously thanks to our. Associate producer and sound engineer Dion Simpkins for paying both Queen, which is great band, um, and also Merrill Reese calling the uh, field goal there. There were two points in the game that that field goal represents. 
One, of course, is the Eagles at one point were up five points with two and a half minutes left. Tom Brady has the ball. So the Patriots have the ball. This is before the strip sack by Brandon Graham. I know, Adi, you told me you were paying attention to the win probabilities during the game. Just for our listeners here on Moneyball, again, this is before the Eagles kicked that, before Jake Elliott kicked the field goal. The Patriots have the ball, down five with two and a half minutes left. According to ESPN or wherever, Fangrass, whatever you used, what was the win probability for the Eagles so, at that point in time? I'm going to confess I don't remember particularly, but, but it roughly. was in the mid-60s. Only in the mid-60s, yeah. up five. Yeah. Wow. Well, they, they have to score. No, so... Oh, so it was only in the mid-60s. Wait, the Eagles, it must right. have been higher than that. No, it wasn't. So you're so saying... They, I mean, basically, they had to, the Patriots had to execute score. a three-minute drive... That's right. ...at the end of the game. So that would say there's and, a one-third chance? One-third probability. I mean, it's one-third probability. I mean, it's Tom... Br- I mean... That's on all of our minds, it was at least 50% because it was Tom Brady, right? But, I mean, I, if your win probability model is averaging across all it's not. games. Yes. So that's the question. Really? They're like somehow just manually like saying, oh, well, this is Tom Brady? No, I no, mean, no. what is that and 40% based there, on? It's 35% about. And 35%? It's, about, it's, it's based on, I think it's based on... Historically, the, 35% I think they have a sh- of teams with three minutes left no. are able to score that touchdown? If you look at the way they do... First of all, I don't know how they do it because I don't, know, I don't actually do it. But if right. you look at it from the beginning of the game, the, the 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 Patriots were favored, and that's where it started. So they clearly have the probabilities of the the prior probabilities of win built into the game. The probabilities, yeah, I think, yeah, but they, they they have right. The, the Patriots were favored to start the game, but and I any, doubt anytime, that anytime are there models balanced, built in that like, oh well, this is how often Tom Brady does no, this. No, I would guess to, they don't. Do well, that. Then, uh, then, would then, guess, then how the game started for the Patriots is irrelevant. I don't think so. I don't think it, it doesn't start that well, way. Let me it brings ask, it back let me ask, to. So let me just just uh, as playing host here, let me yeah. just ask the two of you a question. So one is, I think, let me just talk about what Shane's talking about just for our audience here on Wharton Moneyball. So one of the things Shane is saying is one way to do it, which we all wouldn't be too big fans of because it would ignore data from other quarterbacks. It would maybe based on small samples is let's just take all the situations that Tom Brady has faced where he's been down less than a touchdown but more than a field goal. So let's just say between four and six points, which this was the case, with three minutes roughly in the game. And let's just compute an empirical win probability for Tom Brady. Now, I can believe that would be as high as 40%. It's very possible that could be one-third. It's very possible. Even higher. Maybe higher. I don't know about higher, but either way, that could be one way you could do an estimate of this. Another way you could do it is you could try to take, I don't want to say comparable quarterbacks, but you could now say, let me take a larger set of quarterbacks in such a situation. Now, of course, we're ignoring that it's the Super Bowl. So one could argue maybe that makes it tougher or easier. It's not obvious which one, but one would have to find a comparable set of games and a comparable set of players. Well, if, if one you, if wanted to be a pure empiricist, that Tom Brady is only at like a third to pull that off. Then obviously, any comparable set of quarterbacks you come up with, it's going to be less than a third to pull that off. I would say, right? I mean, Tom Brady does this. Let's acknowledge that Tom Brady has done this more often than anywhere else. Oh, anybody I, can, else. I can just say, no. Obviously, this is just you know, right. uh, what's this called? Availability bias. Obviously, the Giants did this twice against Tom Brady. Sure. Um, the uh, Tom Brady's Steel- done it literally uh, yeah, no, fifty-one times. No, no. He, I'm talking about in the Super Bowl. Even. Okay. I'm just saying the steel. I mean, actually, but again, if, do if you, you think ca- that this model is just conditioning on Super Bowl? No, games? I hope not. Well, right. So let's 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 again. All just... right. Let me ask you another question. Brady right. had scored at will 
throughout the game. Every possession. They didn't punt once. That's correct. Yeah. All right. They were so, stopped so, once on so fourth forget down. About the, let's forget about what game the day or whatever's model. coming up with. What would you think that probability was at that point? Oh, it was at least 50%. I actually would have thought it was higher, honestly. That was in my personal feeling I think you he was going to score, we and watched, that was that. I, well, we wa- <laughs> well, yeah, because Tom, you, you're... Tom Brady screws up your like intuition because he does it so often. But I mean, actually but executing done executing a three minute drive. Well, I mean, it's not like every touchdown was scored in three minutes in that game, right? That's true. Uh, but- a- executing a three minute gr- drive for a touchdown against the number one defense in the NFL—that is not something that most quarterbacks right. do. In fact, so let me ask you a question, Shane. I just want to make sure I'm clear on this, and this is maybe puts it on the. You know, I was trying to say put it on the scale at that point in time in the game. Yeah. You would rather have been the Patriots and the Eagles. I'm just no. asking. No, you just well, you just well, said you it's greater than fifty percent. Well, okay, uh, still... but you were indifferent. You were indifferent. You would have been, and maybe being a Patriots fan, you'd rather say, "I'd rather have the ball in my hands." Let's count on our best strength, which is our offense, which is. Well, I accurately pointed out had not been stopped yeah. the entire game. So maybe on the margin, you yeah. would have rather been the yeah. Patriots there. Yeah, I well, think so. All right, now Adi, we heard Merrill Reese made the call. Brandon Graham strip sacked. The Eagle, the Patriots, sorry, the Eagles ran the ball three times, got it down to a minute ten, kicked a field goal. Now with the Eagles up eight points with a minute ten left, people at the party I was at were asking me, so Eric, what do you think are the odds of the Eagles winning the game at that point in time? I had an, a belief in my mind. I actually didn't look. Oh, what were what? the odds at that point? Remember, the Patriots, for our listeners, Patriots have to score a touchdown and a two. And, and no time and overtime. What? They had no timeouts. Right. No and timeouts. no timeouts. And it would have to go into overtime, and they'd have to win in overtime, too. So what was the odds at that point? It was nearly 99%. Yeah. Really? Right. Yeah. Now, I guessed 95% at the time, sure. and maybe just because I was giving it Tom Brady. Of course, if he gets the six, he's going to get the two. But, of course, that's not <laughs> happening. That's not guaranteed. And by the time he had – this was interesting. We are so spoiled by that guy. The Hail Mary. somehow pulls off these impossible yeah. things. The yeah. Hail Mary was given at one in a thousand. Yeah, which I didn't. Think, I'm not sure that's right, but it was 99.9 by the time he had it. They almost did that too. Well, that's impressive too. And by the way, the other impressive part that I thought was most quarterbacks don't even get you into a position where you're at the 50 yard line. Yeah. Let's not give up the fact that he converted a fourth and ten from his let's say eight yard line. He got them to you can't. Got them no, to not even Tom Brady can throw a hail mary from the eight, but Tom Brady can throw. And by the way. Most quarterbacks, when they throw a Hail Mary, it's out of bounds, it's out of the back of the end zone. He threw it directly yeah. into the center of the end zone. If it's caught... Because well, he's the best quarterback we've ever seen ever play football. I mean, guy threw for 500 yards. 505. Don't 505 cut it. <laughs> yards. Yeah, the only and knock... Lost. Against the number one defense <laughs> right. in the NFL, The only supposedly. knock I would have on him in the game, and maybe, I don't know if it's a slight knock, is that... I mean, just now in retrospect, I thought he played brilliantly. I oh thought, my by goodness, the way, I thought they had. This is the way I viewed the game. Guys, they had God. the best player on the field, Tom Brady. Yeah. maybe the second best in Gronk, and then the Eagles had the next twenty best players. That's about but right. But Tom Brady, the only knock would be looking at his stats after the game. He was twenty-eight of forty-eight. That's not fantastic. I mean, it's not a great completion percentage. <laughs> no. What twenty-eight of forty-eight? It's not a great completion I, I, percentage. I don't uh, Nick Foles was twenty-eight, I think, of thirty-nine. So I'm saying yeah, no, he I competed guess. less than 60% of his passes in the game. I'm saying he threw four more passes without a completion than Nick Foles. I yeah. think it was nine more. 
Well, I think you just he, said he's 28. 28 of thir- I think Foles, I thought, was 28 of 39, and Brady was 28 of you 48. You get four chances. But I, might have it, I might have it wrong. He didn't throw an interception. He did not throw an interception. Which it, it, he had did. a brilliant game. I said the only knock I could say I on him was... I don't, but you're really stra- you know, sort of That's like a stretch. It. My only knock against Tom Brady is he wasn't running very fast off the game field after... I think he after... dropped, I think he dropped, a, dropped a pass. It wasn't a great pass. That <laughs> wasn't a, ter- a great. Well, yeah, he's not. You a good, gotta love He's the, not a good receiver. Well, Adi, right. So now, could you That's talk about? Mark. You also brought up in your comments the uh, the fourth down plays that the Eagles went for. Mm-hmm. Both yes. one at the forty five yard line, down a point by that point. They were down thirty three, thirty two with five minutes left. And then, secondly, you mentioned you know fourth the, and one on the goal. The on fourth the- and one on the goal line, which ended up throwing the ball back to Nick Foles. Could With you, the Philly special. They the Philly there. special. Could you talk about both of those from just a expected win percentage and expected points? And you could also tell our fans how expected points and expected win percentage aren't necessarily the same thing, and those could differ in various ways. Right, so I don't know what is actually going on on the field. There's a fourth and almost every fourth and one, except perhaps on the, your own five-yard line, are, are opportunities to go because the... Just the way it works out mathematically, but on the fourth and one on the goal line, the expected points is very high, much better than kicking a field goal. Interestingly enough, the probability of success is is probably in the mid 60s, 65 percent, which means so the just, expected number of points are about four and a half, five points, as opposed to three or just under three because you can miss a field goal. Um, but how do you just to interrupt? Sorry to interrupt you for one second again. If you want to join the conversation, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. We're here on Wharton Moneyball talking about the Super Bowl. I'm here with my colleagues, professor of statistics Shane. Jensen, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. What about also, have you added to the expected points of going for it on fourth and one? If you're stopped, the other team is at the half-yard line or the one-yard line. So how a lot of people were asking me that during the game. Like, why are you saying go? Get the three points. Well, every, and I'm like, well, everybody in the even room. if they don't get it, the other team's at the one-yard line. So actually, the, the thing that I think was most important for the Eagles to realize is they're the underdogs. I know that we're not. they didn't act like the underdogs, and that's important. But you have to take risks if you're going to win in this. And, and these are ideal places to take chances. And if they're going to beat the the the, the, the Patriots and the greatest every, franchise of all they time, they needed in every football. point they they could get. They were going to have to make moves like this. Were you surprised, mm-hmm. guys? By the way, guys, were you surprised? You talked about taking chances. Were you surprised the Eagles went for two early on in the game? Now they missed an extra well, point, as you remember. The extra point. I, yeah. I, I know, but if if I thought that was a little no, bit I, strange, I didn't so. that, I, you didn't I, think so. I, I don't think it was think because was because you can't. I mean, the way the points come in football, they come in in, in discrete segments: three, six. Seven, being up by five is just useless. Yeah, I think at the time I may have it wrong. I didn't that put them up twelve to three or something. I yeah. forget exactly what weird, the score was. was. Right, I just thought it could have gone up ten, yeah. and you know nine, ten. I mean nine is a magic number. Nine's a lot better than eight in football, but ten is also better than nine. If it's in one of those, I like the. By the way, I like your word, Adi. There are these discrete intervals in football, like being like being up four versus five, maybe not that big a deal. Nine versus eight, currently with the two is huge. Ten versus nine, one could argue, is right on the margin. That's, yeah. why, you, that's why you see three. odds uh, in the bookies is two and a half is very different from three. Yeah. Absolutely. But, I mean, I think the greater point is is correct that the Eagles, I think, realized um, that the key to beating the Patriots is just, I mean, to 
to take every chance you can and, take and, and hit every on, chance and you hope have. you hit on them. And they hit on every single one they did. Yeah, I mean, look, if we think about the way the forget the penalty calls, because by the way, people have been complaining about look, the Eagles won the game. People are complaining about those like a hold against Gronk that kept the drive alive. That was one of the worst holds I've ever seen in football. So I don't think, although the Eagles, I think, were called for six or seven penalties and the Patriots won, the thing I loved about the game also is the referees let the guys play the game. They let, yeah. The referees did not determine. Yeah, no, thank goodness there weren't any controversial refereeing decisions well, in that game. Well, I was going to get to that were, in a second. We were, we were no, close no, no. to it. We so were very I close was to going it. To get I was being sarcastic. He was being sarcastic. <laughs> I was going to get to that in a second. Two so touchdowns. So if you think about it, every, pretty much every break, also went the Eagles' way yeah. in the game. Just yeah. to remind all of our fans out yeah. there, there were two big plays. Yeah. One, which I thought was less controversial, was the Zacherts touchdown. Yes. I um, thought he took three steps. He, he was not going sure. to the ground. Also, I've not actually as, seen as, an as, angle. As, as, I've actually not even seen an angle where, even if he was going to the ground, that the ball actually hit the ground. It did. I saw It did? They, saw it, so, they yeah. showed it flat on the ground? Yeah. Yep. Okay, because I thought it popped up and he caught it again. But that one I thought it was less controversial. less controversial than the Corey Clemens touchdown where his foot was out of bounds Definitely. i'm not even worried about that no no but they're saying the back foot touched yeah, that sure. he wasn't yet he was he had control of the ball oh i see and that no, no the, the foot you're talking about was his third foot oh that was his third that foot. was well, his, so they gave him credit for that first one they did control i do i do not either i think that was a bad call i mean the zach the zach Ertz call i'm more torn on because in my you know, as a, as, holi- a fan. as a holistic That's fan, a I think that should count as a catch. But that is certainly an example of them inconsistently enforcing mm-hmm. their catch rule. Because that Jesse James no, catch against Pittsburgh if you look, was if you basically look it, identical. No, they call that not a catch. It wasn't. He didn't. He didn't make a. He didn't make a single step. When he he yeah, caught the ball, he, was and right. he fell down and put it. He clearly gu- guided the ball into into the end zone as know. he was falling. I don't know. Well, but anyway, let me let me, let me on I don't want to move on from football. We can keep talking about football, but I do want to move on in the following sense. So now that the 2018 Super Bowl is done, of course, the prognosticators and the uh, you know the betting lines have already started projecting the 2018-19 season. So not surprisingly, and for good reason, the Pats are the favorite again. Um, here are the five teams in order of the favorites, and then I'll ask each of you, what do you think are the odds of the Patriots to win the Super Bowl as of right now in 2019? So the five teams in order are Patriots, which I don't think I have a problem with, Packers, then Eagles, then Steelers, then Vikings. It goes Pats, Packers, so those are the favorites in the AFC-NFC. Then go the Eagles, I guess is the second best in the NFC, the Steelers, and then the Vikings. Well, here's a better question, I think. What is the probability that one of those wins the Super Bowl? Oh, I, I, one of those. I'm going to say, I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I don't, that's not a statistical analysis. I'm going to say somewhere between 50 and 75%, but no higher. I would, I, 60 was what popped in that my head. Yeah. For, I, for I'm in that neighborhood too. I'm, it's, it's interesting, but if you look at the last few years at the teams that they ranked one through eight, those are mostly the teams that make it into the playoffs. It's, yeah, well, it's but well, also I, you guys remember. I don't. Turns know if, out they're not doing this randomly. No, but, uh, no. but it's football. It's, you don't. You don't see that. You don't. You don't typically don't see. When I don't think you've seen it. If you go back, I, I don't know well, this for sure. You, uh, but ten years ago, if you made the forecast of the top eight teams, for example, what fraction of them are going to be in the top eight positions by the time it gets down to? Well, I, to I the mean, fifth? we're nobody's nobody's. I think it's 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 been one last to, year's you're been saying higher. the pe- teams they ranked one to eight last year were actually one to eight in, no, no, in no, the uh, no, 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 no 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 not they're uh, they're large fraction of them 
Well, that, uh, that I think right. happens right. every year. So just to remind Actually, you, guys, I think so. That's something to, to throw in our in our hamper for to to investigate. Well, just to remind you guys of a couple facts. So you guys remember of the, um, I guess it's eight eight division winners, right? Of the eight division winners this year, yeah. I'm pretty sure six of them were new and didn't even make the playoffs last year, just to show you how much turnaround. By the way, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, has put up on my screen, um, the Eagles, at some point, were 50-1 to one to win yep. the Super Bowl this year. Certainly most books had them starting at 40-1, to one, just to give you an idea. Because remember, they were 7-9 and nine, mm-hmm. uh, the previous year. Um, that's interesting. By the way, what do you guys think are the, you know, if... You know, plus a hundred. What do you think the Patriots are right now to win the Super Bowl? Like if you wanted to bet a hundred dollars on the Patriots right now to win the 2019 Super Bowl, what do you think your payout would be? Four hundred. Any guesses? Four. I bet you it's lower because they always do this. It's three fifty, yeah. but you're not far off. So, can you just tell our fans how you would convert that to an odds of winning? Well, the easiest way to convert it to an odds is take the uh, sum the the total. So, one hundred plus four hundred is five hundred, and then you divide by the amount that you're wagering, and that's your probability. So, one hundred over five hundred, or twenty. So, it'd be twenty percent. So, this way, is, and they're, they're giving so it a little higher. They're giving a little higher than twenty. percent Matter of fact, somewhere between twenty and twenty five. Remember, they have a cut, so all probabilities are higher because of they because of they have to cover their. Their fees. So right. you got to bring it down. So what I was giving you is what I thought it was the probability. Yep. So, uh, again, uh, this is Wharton Moneyball. You can call in and join the conversation at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So just staying on the football theme, but maybe moving away from the actual Super Bowl itself. Um, we also had a big announcement this weekend about the Hall of Fame in football. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my view, I don't know, Shane, you're obviously a football, huge football fan like I am. I think this is the greatest class to ever go into the Hall of Fame. And just let me just remind our fans who's going into the Hall of Fame. So, and I think one thing shocked a lot of people, because the Hall of Fame, by the way, in football is almost an impossible Hall of Fame to get into. It's one that uh, two receivers, and we could argue two of the greatest receivers of all time, though, that was the shocking part, got in on the same year. So that's Terrell Owens and Randy Moss. Um, I think, you know, one could say one of the great linebackers in the history of football, Brian Urlacher, got into the Hall of Fame. It's well, hard. He, and he's the second best linebacker in the class that got right, this year. It, right. He, another good point. He's not even the best linebacker in the class. Yeah. Uh, Ray Lewis is obviously who you're referring to, which yes. many people would say a top 10 all-time great in the history of the NFL. Yeah, I find it really hard to compare across positions, but I'm... Yeah. I mean, you're yeah. certainly not appalled by no, my comment no, that no, he's a top no, ten all-time no. player. No, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, to kind of use the rationale um, that you often apply to the baseball Hall of Fame, where you talk about tiers within the right. Hall, tiers, you know, the top, t- you know, one tier, two tier, three tier. You know, I think that these guys, uh, this five, these five are. There's not a single sort of like tier three. Tier three, that's right. But I think we would agree. Ray There's Lewis, at least three tier ones. Lewis, Owens, and Moss are clearly tier one Hall of Famers. Agreed. And Agreed. I, I mean, Urlacher, certainly could, you could top argue 10, Urlacher. Top ten of all time at their, at their position. Urlacher, right. um, I, I, I have to look a little bit more at linebackers, but certainly Lewis is top ten at all time. And by the way, the nice thing I liked about what Brian Urlacher said is he's honored to go in with uh, Ray Lewis, and he said, I wasn't Ray Lewis. Well, he goes, you know, he was very clear that he goes, I'm in the Hall of Fame, but then there's a different Hall of Fame for that guy over there. That's right. That's right. 
And, and so I guess that's Erlacher saying that he would consider himself in Tier 2 or something like that. He would consider himself, well, put this way, yeah. I, maybe he'd consider himself the lower part of Tier 1, but yeah. certainly he says Ray Lewis was a better football yeah. player than I was. And we and haven't course, even mentioned... Well, Brian Dawkins. You who know, might actually be at least Tier 2 in, 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 among safeties. Yeah. Among safeties. Yeah. Obviously had a huge, huge impact on the sport. Yeah. So what, what do you think about... The hall. I mean, there were also a lot of great players that, like for example, no offensive lineman made the yeah. Hall of Fame, despite the fact that this was. Matter of fact, we just talked. I mean, to Kevin Mawai is going to go into Hall of Fame, no doubt about I it. I would assume I mean, Tony Baselli no is going to yeah. go into the Hall yeah. of Fame. I mean, I think this year. It, it, I mean, it was a tough year to kind of get into the Hall of Fame just because there was this, especially with the Owens backlog. I mean, I, so there's 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 no reason Owens should have gone in this year because Owens should have been in two years ago. But weren't you surprised a little bit that because Randy Moss was almost a certain lock for the yeah. Hall of Fame that Owens went in as well? Maybe you'd be surprised. Uh, maybe, that I, mean, I, I don't, maybe the position. psychology works the other way where they're like, you know, they put Moss in and then all of a sudden you, you start looking at Owens and he has comparable numbers and it even strengthens his case. I, I don't know. It could, it could go either way. Because this, this is not an analytics-based decision at right. all. It's just a bunch they, of dudes they're providing in a the room. Numbers, well, sure. But they're not. You're right. As, as, as much as the Baseball Hall of Fame is an analytics-based decision. Yeah. How do you see it, Adi? Well, I, I have some, some maybe naive questions. Um, sure. Uh, offensive linemen, you, you feel, were, were underrepresented. How does uh, the football world value Offensive linemen. How do they even decide who's Hall of Famer? Is it years of, of play? Is it yeah. Yeah. just observational? Yep. That's well, it. it's also yeah. well, as you know, there are more advanced statistics there are, but not, now, right? But there weren't back then, and so it's just. I mean, people have been evaluating offensive linemen for decades, right? Right. I don't know how to evaluate offensive linemen because I just don't know enough about the game and don't have access. You know, like essentially access to. The video and stuff like that that these people go through, but as far as I can tell, people really know who the good offensive linemen and are. They and they do, you know, they do have uh, statistics yeah. on offensive linemen like sacks allowed, where they actually attribute it to an offensive lineman. You know, you can compute. Obviously, there are observable metrics like all pro and you know voted in by your teammates kind of thing. So there are those kind of observable. But you're right, offensive lineman is really tough. But, at, I, but can't the remember, I, I can't wait for like ten years, you, you know, five years from now when when all this video data kind of is being processed and we can actually talk about right. like you know like pocket you, you know how much pocket collapse this particular lineman like right. so, showed and so stuff. I, I'm going to bring it back to the Super Bowl because I'm well aware of what happened there. But there was essentially it would appear to be. No defense, but I don't think that's the case. No, it's not the case. I think this was just a victory of the offensive lineman over defensive lineman. Well, what's your take? What's your take on that? Because let me just remind all of our listeners here: the Brandon Graham strip sack was the only sack in the game, Mm -hmm. and I would also argue a lot of times. You know, you say, "Well, Tom Brady's got um, such an amazing release; you could be putting pressure on him and not sack him." I actually didn't think either quarterback was under pressure, particularly nope. during the game. I thought both quarterbacks had mostly as much time as they wanted, and I agree. I saw it as a victory for the offensive linemen, but how did you view it, Shane? I, no, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think both quarterbacks were very much locked in and were doing things like screens and stuff like that, that that both teams knew that they would be getting, like, receiving pressure and did their design their offense around trying to mitigate that and did a good job of that. So, I mean, so I, I credit the offensive lines for that. I also credit game designs and two locked-in quarterbacks for that. Well, um, you, well, you bring up an important point, which is how do you separate the, I'll call it the ability of the offensive line versus, you know, both teams called offensive game plans that said, look, 
We're not going to turn the football over. Yeah. We're not going to let our quarterback get under pressure. We're going to throw quick slants, screens, yeah. and, and in, in case- the Eagles' case, run the ball. Yeah, so you, you brought up a great point, and I'm glad you brought it up. I'm sure a lot of our listeners here are on Morton Moneyball. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We're talking about the Super Bowl, talking about football. We'll be talking about the Olympics, talking about a lot of stuff here I'm on at- Morton Moneyball. Um, Shane brings up at a really important point, which is the Eagles were really able to run the football. Yeah. They ran for well, I they have good running somewhere backs. over 150 yeah. yards, maybe. I mean, yeah. Ajahi and uh, I mean, Blunt I think this makes good. what Brady did even more impressive because he agreed somehow was able to. I mean, he ha- basically had to carry the game they, because they knew, you know, the Patriots abandoned the run pretty early on. Yeah, and actually, I was a little surprised by that only because. Um, the Patriots are a good running football team. Mm-hmm. And by the way, thanks to yep. my producer again, Matt Datz, for putting it up. Eagles ran for 27 rushes for 164 yards. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that was a real... Because I think you're bringing up an important point. The pass became more effective for the Eagles because the run was a legitimate yeah. threat. And that's why it's so, it's incredibly shocking that the pass was so effective for the Patriots, given that they had no running game. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, the defense the greatest, basically sit greatest quarterback yeah. in the history of the yeah. NFL. And by the way, even as someone that's, a, as people know, I'm from a New Yorker, I hate the Patriots. My stock on Tom Brady went up after oh, this game, ha- would not have down, to, right? Not down. It actually, I'm, even though he's now, by the way, you know, so now we get back to the Shane Jensen kind huh. of coin flipping theory. Yeah. So that's in baseball, the, isn't that yeah, yeah, but, but let's apply. So now, no, no. But all I'm commenting I think on the is Super Bowl is all I'm commenting on is well. you know the Patriots as an organization. We'll get to Brady in a second. Are now five and five in the Super Bowl. It's hard to win the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. The Tom Brady is five and three in the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's, it's and by the way, I think you and I would agree if we look at it, the totality of eight teams, eight games that he's played. We could argue six and two, five and three, but it's about right. Yeah, it's about right. And actually, you brought this up. I don't know why everybody. You brought it up for weeks. I don't know why everybody wasn't expecting a great game. This is the biggest margin ever, and this wasn't really an eight-point game. I mean, it was at the end, but you just said no. it was going to be a close yeah, game. No, I you mean, said it the whole time. Honestly, they should. I, I guy, everybody. Let's just all agree. Put the Patriots in the Super Bowl every year. It's always an exciting game. Always an exciting. Let's game. just agree. Let's just I don't agree. know if we want to put them in a. I'm, 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 I, we'll see. We'll see That's if we get consensus. <laughs> but it was just. It was a. It was a fantastic yeah. football game. But I. I liked Adi. I liked the way you opened, and then you know we'll take a break, and we'll. We'll. We have lots of other things to cover here. But I liked the way it was a great game for analytics because you could track win probabilities. Doug Peterson was going forward on fourth down. He was making down. decisions which were interesting and, and they did, needed analysis to justify. And not only that, you bring up an important point, which is, you know, you, you, if you're the underdog, you've got to go for higher variance. Absolutely. You just have yeah. to. Which is, why I, which is why I forecasted two weeks ago that Neil Payne would not win the 538 contest because someone underneath him was going to take some big chances and move ahead. And that's actually exactly what happened. There was just almost no chance that he could do it unless he got lucky and wagered it all at the end, which is typically what you don't do at the top. And one of the things that would be great for our listeners, whether it's tweeting us at, at @wmoneyball or, uh, again, uh, just following us, um, it was interesting to me that, in some sense, the underdog almost gives you—we'll I, 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 talk about this throughout the show today— 
being the underdog almost frees you up and gives you the liberty to take high variance. Because you know what? If the Eagles had lost the game, well, of course the Eagles lost yeah, the game. Absolutely. They lost the game to Tom Brady. But because they were the underdog, they could take a high variance strategy. And what's the worst that could happen to Doug Peterson? You went for it. You, had, you were gutsy. You weren't going to win the, the game anyway. The fans were not happy. I will say that this was not. And, and there was, of course. Oh, the, I don't know. Yeah. It, what, if they had gone for it, like, say, down, like, got fourth the fourth and one, one on right. the goal line, not gotten that, and then lost by, like, two points, you think Doug Peterson would, like, have gone Survive, away scot-free? No uh, I don't think he would be flying uh, back from Minneapolis no, right now. No. I, th- so I, I really I admire he, his I think he literally, he, he legitimately took a chance there. Well, this has been the first half hour here on Wharton Moneyball. We've got an hour and a half to go. Please join us again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-hosts this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. We're here from a little bit icy Philadelphia, but also the home of the world champion Philadelphia Eagles. Thanks to our producer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back with some music that kind of gets us in the mood to talk more sports, business, and statistics. So guys, besides football, there are other sports happening in the world, uh, lots of sports happening all the time in the world, and lots of statistics happening. So we're very fortunate to have Oliver Miller. Miller Farrell here on the line. Uh, Oliver is the business development director for North America at the Perform Group. Um, we've actually talked to people about soccer analytics before many times here on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Oliver's work helps support major broadcasters and leading digital platforms around soccer. Uh, he works with companies such as NBC, Fox, ESPN, and Yahoo. So, Oliver, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's good to be here. I uh, appreciate you guys having me. I'm a, I'm actually in a, a snowy New York right now, but um, not not very happy with the the, the silly result in the Super Bowl. So we'll, well, we'll let, let that one go. Well, let me go. Let You're me go. Let fan? me go. I mean, to, let me go. To, to yeah, right. let me go to that point because uh, you have two New Yorkers here: Eric Bradlow and Adi Weiner. Uh, yeah. Shane's a. a Pete was Canadian, but as a spent like me, spent a lot of time in Boston. So as a Boston fan, so as a New Yorker, this is interesting to me. Wh- well, let me be specific. Where in New York are you from? What part of New York State? I'm I'm from New York City. Okay, so am I. How could you possibly? I mean, we both we as growing up, we hate the Eagles and we hate the Patriots. Yeah. But New York hates Boston a lot more than it hates Philly. So how can you be possibly upset at the outcome of the game? No, listen. I think I would I would prefer the Eagles to win, so I think that that's fair. But um, it was a uh, you know it was a tricky game to watch. I think I was hoping for some better commercials. But uh, <laughs> listen, I mean it was a, it was a good football game overall. So no, I'm, I'm it was a great really football fan. game overall. Yeah, you have to really admit. Was. It really, really was. Um, well, let's move. Yeah, let's move to why you're here today. But uh, but by the way, at some point, we'd be happy to talk if maybe the perform groups maybe going to move into other sports and analytics. But first of all, could, tell us a little bit about your background. How did sure. you kind of go into analytics and make this part of your career and your job? Yeah. Well, uh, where do I start? Um, so I guess you know the, the first thing to start with is that um, you know I, I've been a soccer player kind of all my life. Um, have, have played throughout kind of my childhood in high school. Um, played in college, um, gave it a shot afterwards, but it, it really wasn't. Uh, I don't think I was, I was nearly good enough. But um, have definitely played um, kind of throughout my, um, you know, my life, and, and have dabbled in, in coaching a little bit. Um, but then in school, I, um, I I concentrated in neuroscience undergrad, um, and it really kind of opened my eyes to um, you know decision making and cognition, and, and kind of just thinking about how we, uh, you know, how we intake information and, and, and data, and how we make decisions off that. So it really kind of opened my eyes to this new um, this new world. So when I graduated school. Um, I started coaching a little bit, and then I started working in a restaurant, and then um, really kind of this, this chance at Opsa really fell on my lap in terms of becoming a, a live data analyst, which is uh, 
what we call the people that are actually collecting the data live um, while watching the game. Well, could you tell us about that? So you could you tell us what's unique about the kind of data you're talking about? Because, you know, historically, a lot of us saw baseball. You read the box score after the game. Could you tell us about what's happening at the Perform Group and what in technology has allowed you to do live data analysis and live data collection? Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting point because I really think that the evolution of soccer analytics is largely tied to the evolution of technology to to collect soccer, right? I think baseball has obviously been ahead of the game because people have been collecting baseball data for for hundreds of years now using a pencil and um, you know paper. So soccer was was a bit trickier, and I think needed that technology push, but um, it's here and, it, and it's continuing to grow. Well, how um, does the tech so, work? So tell us. Let's right. just start. So, forget the data side for a second. How does the technology work? There's you know. I mean, I've, since I'm a professor of marketing and statistics, you know, I'm used to RFID devices on uh-huh. products. Do people have little RFID chips on them? Or how, what is the actual tech part of the data collection? Yeah, sure. So what we collect at Opta is called on-the-ball data. Um, so we essentially have a methodology with, with very strict definitions for every single kind of event that we collect in a game, which can, um, you know, come to, to more than 2,000 events across the full match. So it's, it's all on-the-ball data. So we essentially have one analyst per team watching the game, um, collecting all of the events for a given team and, and communicating throughout the game in terms of um, some, of, some of the elements that they're collecting. But they're essentially just watching a screen on a proprietary software um, and, and using a mouse to kind of um, relate what they're seeing on the screen to a, to a 2D field representation um, and clicking around that field. And as they see events occur, entering those events kind of with hotkeys on a keyboard. So I'm sure, you know, many of there's been a 538 article about it. You know, we tend to kind of pick up um, people that have, you know, fast hand-eye coordination or are um, typically very good at video games and stuff like that. But more or less, it's, it's watching the game, um, relating what you're seeing on the video screen to this field representation and entering all of these events in live action. So um, someone will see a pass, they'll hit enter, they'll click where the pass originated, they'll draw a string to where the pass ended, and then they'll keep going with the game. And, and that's obviously just one event of, of many, many that we collect. So let me ask, I got. I have lots of questions, and again, we're talking to Oliver Miller-Farrell. Oliver is the Business Development Director of North America at the Perform Group. They support soccer analytics and a lot of work done by broadcasters and digital leading platforms such as NBC, Fox, and ESPN. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball. If you have a question for Oliver or for any of us, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Oliver, let me ask you a question. Um, do you see a day where it's not humans watching this, but this is done in mass scale with automated software where, you know, in some sense, we don't need humans. It's just this is just data collected kind of live streaming. I think what the process is going to be is, is what can we collect automatically without humans? Um, take away a bit of, you know, the bandwidth that obviously comes with collecting this, right? It's, it's quite intense. Um, so if there are certain events that we can collect without humans, I think that frees up kind of the opportunity for humans to put their own kind of um, flavor and, and kind of understanding of the game on top of it, right? Because I think what, what computers, at least not yet, can do, that, that humans really can do is kind of predict intent or, or make assumptions on intent. So one example I always like to use is, um, you know, Opta data. We have, we have kind of two different types of, of long balls in the air. One's called a chip pass and one's called a launch, Right, So the difference between the definition of these two is a chip pass is a, is a pass that a player is making in the air over kind of 25 yards, but that's directed towards a player, right? Whereas a launch is something very different in terms of a player just kind of finding an area of the field versus a specific player. So those are two very different events in our methodology and the definitions. 
Um, so it's important to have humans to be able to kind of, you know, collect some of those um, elements of intent that perhaps a computer wouldn't be able to register. So let me ask one more question, then I, I can see my colleague Ali Weiner has a question as well. Um, when you use humans, you know, so we in marketing measure lots of stuff by humans. Matter of fact, we watch video. This has been done in the field of marketing for years. You typically have multiple raters, and then you have what's called either it's Cronbach's Alpha, which measures how much agreement there is among the raters. When there's a disagreement, there's kind of breaking rules for this. Are, do you have a system? Like, what's the test-retest? reliability of mm-hmm. humans watching like how much error is there just in you know sometimes humans will call it this sometimes humans will call it that how much precision is there in this kind of data well i will say that the precision and and, and more so kind of the consistency especially when you're collecting you know we're not talking about just collecting mls for example we're talking about having offices all around the world collecting more than 60 plus leagues at kind of this xy coordinate level so it's really about the consistency of collection right where a path in, in etl is the same as a path in mls or anything that we collect so that is certainly kind of the bread and butter of everything we do so the, there's a full qa department that's constantly looking at the output constantly kind of um, seeing if there's any kind of red flags or anomalies in terms of collection kind of holistically. Um, but, but kind of further than that, on, on, on a micro level, every game that we collect, we, we do live or for, for the most part. Um, once we do those live games, we'll have someone comb through the entire game in a post-match setting um, and just ensure that every single one of those 2,000-plus points is accurate and in line with our methodology and the definition the XY coordinates are all accurate, all of that stuff. So, you know, we can, we kind of ensure a level of accuracy live. Obviously, it's, it's an intense process, but but certainly after we, we go through and comb through the whole thing to make sure it's fully 100%. So this is Adi Weiner. I, I'm very interested in this technology. And in baseball, they have the stat cast, and, and that tracks it live with uh, computers. Um, that doesn't doesn't determine what's happened, and I understand that a human being needs to do that. But how, I mean, wouldn't it be monumentally more efficient and probably more accurate if the computer at least just told you who it was who made the pass, where it started and where it ended, and just keeps track of the players on the field? And that's pretty easy to do with cameras. So you, you, you shouldn't be that far away from that, and that would free up much more accurate data, and then the human analysis could do more things. Yeah, Oliver, as Adi's saying, do you see a blend? Did you see a blend coming towards the future? No, absolutely. I think you guys are spot on in terms of what the next, you know, five to ten years will look like in terms of, pardon me, um, tracking data really, you know, becoming a part of it, right? Like like I said in the beginning, optic collect on the ball data. Um, the, the, there are some challenges in terms of tracking data, nonetheless, in terms of kind of the capex that's required to install cameras in a stadium. Um, but one of the really kind of interesting challenges, especially when it comes to soccer, is, you know, from Optus perspective, we're collecting um, loads and loads of leagues all around the world, all with the same kind of consistency, right? Because it's all kind of centralized in terms of our collection process. When we start to think about off-the-ball collection or tracking data, right, in terms of camera installations and stadiums, we get to this, you know, uh, conundrum and predicament where, um, let's say, one league chooses a tracking company, like PL chooses a tracking company, MLS chooses another one, another league chooses a different tracking company. Then we have all of these different kind of cooks in the kitchen um, that are, you know, more or less collecting similar information, right, with off-the-ball data, but um, you have various tracking companies that have different outputs, different methodologies. So how do we start to, um, you know, benchmark leagues against each other using this data if everything's coming from different sources? So it's, it's, it's a different challenge. It's obviously going to be the future. Everyone is very, very hungry for, for off-the-ball data, especially when you can merge it with the on-the-ball data, right? I think that that's absolutely what's going to happen. But um, it, it, it takes time, and I think 
um, what, what, what's fascinating to me about kind of this, this innovation with tracking data and what's, what's going to come is, I think before what we saw was, especially with Opta and as Opta's grown over you know the past couple decades, is you know really the media kind of pushed the pro side to start to use Opta data and, and analytics, right? Media was really kind of the first to jump on it for fan engagement and consumption. What's happening with tracking right now a little bit is I think it's almost a vice versa situation where I think clubs are now kind of have hurdled the media side um, and are very, very hungry for this off the ball data to really enhance their analysis. Whereas media broadcast, at least on the soccer side is, is maybe a bit behind, right. In terms of um, not, not only kind of the investment, but even being able to use this right in a live broadcast and everything. Well, um, well so Oliver, so we spent the first few minutes with you talking about the data side. Let's yeah. move on to the next two parts, because we're both a data show, but we're also a business show. So could you tell us the uses of this data? So what, besides broadcasters, are teams using it? What kind of decisions are they using it for? How do you, what, like, you know, in some sense, why are people paying the perform group money to have this data? What's the value <laughs> in the data? Yeah, sure. So I kind of I, I wear two hats in, in, in my uh, my daily role. So I work with you know media big big media and broadcast groups like the ones mentioned earlier on, and then um, aside from that, I work with pro teams, leagues, and federations. So um, you know while each side of that aisle may have different end goals, right? Where kind of pro teams and leagues are, are very focused on on how do we use data to to make better decisions, lower risks, um, all that stuff. Uh, the media side is maybe more focused on storytelling and narrative, fan engagement, all of that. So. The, the, the end goals might be different, but the process, and, and this is fascinating for me in terms of wearing both of these hats, is it, it's, it's very similar in terms of an education process, right? So for media and broadcast, I think you know, we're very focused on, on letting them know and educating them on, on how data can really enhance their story. And, and that's not just numbers, that's facts, that's visualization, whatever it is that data can support kind of that storytelling um, and, and kind of show media groups and, and broadcast groups that, you know, at the end of the day, data is, is really content, right? And, and it, it can become an asset for a sponsor. It can become, you know, like StatCast, you know, it, it becomes kind of this asset that you can monetize, right, at the end of the day. Um, and, and then on top of that, I think it really kind of enhances this engagement for fans. On the pro side, um, especially when it comes to soccer, I think data is absolutely valuable for the, the global scale um, in, in terms of scouting and recruiting. That's, that's just one side of it. But given how many players there are in the world, if you are able to shortlist players using data that fit in line with your style, your philosophy, the KPIs for a certain position, and you can have that shortlist and then go out and start to watch these players live rather than just going blindly into it, that, that's super valuable and can save tons of money from the scouting and recruitment angle. So you just brought up an interesting word, which we use in all kinds of business, which are KPIs. Could you give us a sense of how kind of the raw data, like what are the KPIs of soccer analytics? Is it speed? Is it power? Like, how do you translate, let's call it the video into, you know, as the three of us sitting here at, at Wharton Moneyball, we're statisticians. We're like, all right, so what's the X variables and what kind of model do you put them in? How do you translate video into, yeah. let's call them mathematical variables that someone could use in an, in an equation? Sure. I mean, it, you know, the short answer is that it really depends on kind of what the team's looking at, right, in terms of KPIs. But but what they set, obviously, um, can be a, a blend, and I think should be a blend of really kind of the objective opt data and, and, and more of the subjective kind of um, characteristics of a player. You know, what are they like in their family? You know, what's their lifestyle like? But for, from Opta's perspective, I think it, it comes down to, you know, the events we collect, right? Are, are you looking for a player that's 
um, you know, we, we collect uh, something called an interception, right, for, for a central defender. Um, are they um, intercepting passes more so than they're tackling the ball off players, right? Are they able to read the game better than they are maybe to just kind of um, end up, you know, kind of, kind of tackling the ball from a player and kind of scrambling about, about it? So it, it's on an event level, but it's, but it's equally kind of um, using the, the locational data that we collect, right? Where are players active? Is a right back kind of more contained in their own defensive third or, or are we seeing them making touches in the attacking third you know do we want a, a right back that's um you know generating crosses in the attacking third consistently consistently or do we want you know a right back that's kind of staying um you know back at home and, and more defensively focused so you know th- there's no one answer or one kind of way to develop kpis it obviously depends on on what a team's looking at um but it but it's really about kind of setting that consistency setting the the template for it um, and, then, and then using that as you go, go forward kind of in the analysis process. Do you guys work at all on the analysis side, or are you more of just a, not just, but are you more of a data provider, and then the teams kind of say, you know, thank you, Opta, as part of the Perform Group, thanks for this rich database of 2,000 <laughs> actions, we're then going to take it, and, you know, we're going to hire a data science person well, who's going to fit a machine learning model or something. I'm just wondering, are you guys more on the data side, analytics side, or both, or can you be just on one side without the other? No, I, I don't think you can be on one side without the other. I think we're, we're, we're definitely on, on, on both sides of that. Um, we're we're data, data providers, but we're absolutely kind of data users and, and data educators, really, at the end of the day. So in terms of the work we do with teams, I think they're all over the place, right? Some teams have their own departments that are very well established, um, and, and we really don't need to kind of um, you know, dip our hand into the cookie jar too much. I think there are some teams where we do need to support that, and we do need to educate them on on. A, you know, what are we collecting, right? Because I think at the end of the day, what happens is, um, you know, if, if someone doesn't understand how something's being collected um, or, or what the definitions are uh, are of those, um, it's going to be difficult for them to ask the right questions, right, and, and to really come up with theories to use data. So it's important for us to educate, um, you know, those users how we collect it, um, what the output looks like, and, and these are kind of the, the types of questions you can start to ask and the conclusions you can start to make. So, um, no, we, we are absolutely both sides of that. We have a, um, a data science department of, of five people that are, um, you know, not only kind of, you know, analyzing the data, but coming up with new models. So we've recently come up with a new possessions model that is really kind of standardized for the first time what, what a possession in a soccer game is. And I think it's, um, you know, I think you guys will, will start to see well, it more so in the mainstream going forward. Let me, let me just harken back to our original broadcast right before the World Cup, the last World Cup. And I remember commenting, and I don't know much about soccer, so I'm trying to learn, but the Wall Street Journal in particular would put together like a box score, and it seemed to be completely uncorrelated with the outcome. Uh-huh. And so the, yeah. the problem as a, as a casual soccer watcher is that you just – there's no data that seems to be just connected to the outcome. And as a result, what should I be looking at? So educate me. I mean, what is it that you're trying yeah. to measure that is going to be useful at a low level for predicting – performance and success and, and i'll just kind of throw in as an example what i've looked at watching soccer it's this ability to sort of like when you get the ball that just basically sticks to your foot right that, that somehow yeah. containment of the ball or something like that and that's some kind of that would be an example of something advanced that maybe with video capture one could actually quantify yeah so uh-huh. so yes yeah, so oliver what do you think about that yeah, listen, I, I mean, I think the soccer box score definitely needs to evolve. I think one of the, the more recent um, uh, concepts that's really coming to the mainstream is, is this idea of expected goals, um, which I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this. But 
essentially what expectations. We know what expectations, we know and we know what words. goals are. So we can. I think we've got it. But please continue. It's funny because yeah, coming from kind of a staff background, you guys obviously know kind of the uh, the concept of expectation and statistics. I think for for others, I think when they hear expected goals, they they uh, they don't really understand what it means. But right. you know, essentially what the model does is obviously you know Optus collected tens of thousands of shots throughout you know tons and tons of competition. So it takes all of those shots and really kind of generates a value. So based on the the characteristics of a shot, where it is, where the goalkeeper is, you know, what pass came in, was it a cross, was it a through ball, um, what body parts did the player shoot with, was it a header, was it left foot, right foot, whatever it is, right? It takes all these characteristics in, and on average, based on all of these shots we collected, what is the average chance that this shot turns into a goal, right? So we start to really come up with this measurement of not just the, uh, the volume of shots, but really kind of what those qual- the quality of those shots are, right? So I think what you're going to start to see on, on a game-by-game level, at least with box scores, is one team may have had 10 shots in a game, the other team only had four shots, but what if we looked at the expected goal value across each of those teams? That team that had 10 shots, maybe their expected goal value was, was not really great. They were just 10 shots from outside the box. The team that had four shots, their expected goal value was, was far higher, right? Um, and, and that, you know, we can, we can kind of assume that the quality of shots that they were taking were far better. So that, that's on a micro level. I think, you know, more so when we look cumulatively at, at expected goals, we can start to understand are teams overperforming, underperforming players. Um, if a striker is, you know, in, in a drought and, and they haven't scored, can we look at their expected goal value across the season and say, listen, um, if, if this player continues to keep getting those chances, I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll find that they'll um, start to hit the back of the net and, and it's more just kind of an, an unlucky uh scenario. Well, Oliver, just in the last two minutes of what you've said, we could have you on for hours and hours more. Unfortunately, we're out of time today, but you've talked about using the kind of data you have for player evaluation, possibly even coaching evaluation, possibly even, you know, uh, in-game type of decisions, uh, telling, potentially advising players on where to shoot. So there's a lot going forward. So Oliver, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So we've been talking to Oliver Miller-Farrell, who's the Business Development Director of North America at the Perform Group, and telling us about soccer analytics and how they collect data. And just, as I said, over the last, just his last answer for a minute and a half said, you know, maybe 10 shots, 4 shots, they're not equivalent. He's talked about expected goals versus actual goals. So now, you know, we've always talked about that as maybe a way to rate coaches. So it seems like there's a great progression going on in soccer analytics, and that's great for all of us. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, We have a great half to go, so please continue and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professors of Statistics, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and our co-hosts, Cade Massey, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and we're replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And, of course, you can listen to podcasts of our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyBall, and you can email our producer, Matt Datz, anytime now or throughout the week at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, guys, um, obviously, we just had the Super Bowl. 
Um, and it turns out we actually have someone uh, on the phone now, Derek Belch, CEO and co-founder of Striver, a company who uses virtual reality to improve performance of individuals, corporations, and sports teams. Uh, Derek is the pride of both Stanford University, both as a kicker and at USC, but has actually worked with football teams and quarterbacks. Obviously, there was a lot of emphasis on the quarterbacks in the Super Bowl using virtual reality to improve performance. Uh, so, Derek, uh, this is Eric Bradlow. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hey, Eric, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. Appreciate oh, we're doing great. Well, we're in the city of Philadelphia. This is the Wharton School. We're uh, obviously doing great after Sunday's game. Um, so first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, obviously, you spent time at Stanford, was a pl- where you were a kicker, you were a GA, and then you went on and got your MBA from USC. How does that lead you to be to founding and working in the area of virtual reality? Great question. Um, kind of a, a roundabout way to get to where I am today. And transparently, I never set out to be the CEO of a virtual reality company. Um, I was, uh, while I was coaching at Stanford, you mentioned all those other things in my background. While I was coaching as a graduate assistant, uh, I needed to do a master's thesis. And uh, my thesis was to come up with a way to train football players using VR. I partnered with a professor at Stanford, Jeremy Galenson, who runs the virtual reality lab uh, here on campus. And, uh, you know, we basically said, hey, the technology has been around for decades. It's never quite been ready for something like this. But with Oculus, you know, getting bought by Facebook and kind of where we are, uh, he thought this was something that that could be viable. So uh, I am not technical, to be clear. I I think I got a C minus in uh, CS 105. Uh, you know, basic, basic computer science just to learn learn the nuts and bolts of it. But um, I brought the you know the football lens of how would this actually work in practice with a football team. And then obviously when we started uh, the company after the project, I, I brought a business lens for that uh, as well. You know, from the entrepreneurship side. So that, that's how we we got not quite to where we are today, but that's how Striver was born, at least for me at the, at the personal level. Well, tell us about, since we'll start on football and then we'll move on. I know you guys have also done some work with the Olympics, which is obviously very pressing given today and tomorrow. But let's stay with football for a moment. How has it been used in football? So you alluded to a little bit you know, in the beginning, which is mainly around the quarterback. So just to kind of take an even bigger look at it, uh, football is a very physically demanding game. And there are rules around how much time you're allowed to spend on the practice field. So uh, right off the bat, there is a premium placed on getting reps, both physical reps, but more importantly, mental reps, because the highest levels of the game, uh, it's the mental decision-making that separates the pros from the Joes, the really good players from the, the ones that are, are just struggling to make the team. So, um, you know, there's a premium placed on reps. And then with that, you know, a lot of players, uh, they just they watch film. And, and film is from 50 feet in the air, uh, the same angles you would see on television. And that is not uh, what you actually see when you're on the field. So when we first started this as, as an academic project, uh, we were giving players a, a viewpoint of, hey, here are your eyes when you're on the field. Here's what you actually see. And then the last benefit of this is uh, – Football is, um, how do I say this the right way? It, it's just, there's a lot going on in every play. It's a very, very cerebral game, a lot more than people get, give it credit for. Um, so the, the static nature of how the game is played, where everybody starts 
from a static position and they don't really move until they've made a decision or maybe they've only moved a couple feet before they make a decision and then they go you know, somewhere really fast or in the case of a quarterback, they throw the ball. Um, that's just so perfect for VR where there are issues with people say they get sick and the camera moving and all that stuff. So, you know, that, that trifecta of, of uh, why football is a really good fit um, and mainly we're talking about the quarterback, but we've done it for almost every position on the field one way or another. Um, that's what we're doing, giving players that mental edge and getting more reps when they otherwise wouldn't be able to get them off the field. So let, let me go systematically through the VR and its application to football, and then we've seen some stuff on your website and stuff about the stuff you're doing with the Olympics. Um, how do you create the VR realistically for football? Is it based on video capture? Is it based on just purely computer simulation? Like, how is the VR created that's done in a realistic fashion, just from the data and the, let's call it, creation side? Sure. So we, we use real video. Um, for everything we've done on the sports side and, and 90% of what we've done on the, on the non-sports side with the Walmarts of the world, which we can talk about later. So um, when, we, when we work with a team, uh, we give them everything they need, the hardware, our, our software, et cetera. We teach them how to do this on their own on a daily basis so they can capture their own video, uh, upload it into the cloud, into our software player, edit it, QC it, put uh, overlays on it, you know, make it their own with respect to things they want to teach, concepts, um, et cetera. The reason why we use real video is because there is no CGI on the planet today, um, certainly nothing that's affordable at scale that truly looks like a real person. Yeah, that was exactly that. my question. Yep. Yeah, yep, exactly. So, that, so there's science behind everything that we do. So, you know, four years ago when we were figuring out how to do this well as an academic project, uh, Jeremy told me, hey, we, we can't have a, a Madden character hopping or translating across the screen because that's just not going to train the quarterback for what we're trying to do here with a decision being made in 0.8 of a second. As a matter of fact, it could have the opposite of the intended effect. So um, we use real video. Uh, it's very authentic. It's very engaging. It's very real. Uh, there are some downsides to that. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, um, you know, how how interactive is it? I'm kind of stuck in, in, in one spot versus being able to move throughout the play as I may be able to do with tracking with a, with more of a, a CGI environment. Um, Presumably it also I, I, kind of constrains the type of things you can train the quarterback for in the sense that you the video must exist for whatever, yeah. like formation, yep. et cetera. Yep. That was, that was the next point. You, you, you beat me to it. We're on the same page. Perfect. So, um, the next one is you have to actually film what you want to put in there. So it's not just click a button and I can have an unlimited number of permutations and combinations, right? Um, so, you know, th there are some downsides. Uh, but the upside is it, it just feels legit. The players that have gone all in on it say, this is awesome, and it, it's not BS. Well, let me get um, now. So, let me, yeah. Derek, uh, so, by the way, we're talking to Derek Belch. Derek is the CEO and co-founder of Striver, a company that uses VR to improve performance of individuals, corporations, and sports teams. Again, this is Eric Bradlow. I'm hosting Wharton Moneyball this morning here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. And if you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Derek, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So, uh, Derek, could you tell us, like, how 
pervasive is this use now? Like, are lots of, I mean, you're welcome to mention names if you want to, but like, how many teams are all in? How many quarterbacks are all in? Is it at just the pro level, the college level, maybe even high school level now? Like, who's really into VR in football right now? Yeah, so we we work with eight teams in the NFL, uh, 13 in college. Uh, There are, um, there is one other company that works with less than half the number of teams we do in the NFL. So about a third of the NFL is doing something in this area. Uh, and, and they have about another 10 plus college teams. And so, you know, a third of the power five. So, you know, a third of each of each level of college in the NFL is, is doing this. Uh, the, the high quality VR has not trickled its way down to the high school level yet um, because it's just too expensive. So anything at the high school level, um, we actually do work with one high school team that is fairly deep pocketed. Uh, you can deduce who that may be. There's only a handful of them. Um, but anything at the high school level more is more of that video game variety. Uh, we're looking for how we could create more of a static library uh, the way we do it that could be sold at, at scale to high school teams. Um, so that, that's a that's the answer to the question as far as how pervasive this is. So how about, um, obviously, as a business, and this is great, you're actually a perfect person because we're a business, sports, yep. and statistics show. You've got all three yep. of those components. Could you tell yep. us about, like, let's imagine you were trying to sell it not to us, but just to us, but to our audience, to your to the NFL. What do we know about the effectiveness of this? So how do you, you know, when you're going in to make a business pitch, let's say, the, I don't know if the Philadelphia Eagles are one of your uh, partners, but let's imagine they weren't. You come here to Philadelphia, you're talking to Howie Roseman, you're talking to Mr. Lurie, and all of a sudden you say, here's why we know VR works. How, how do you know? So this this is the million dollar question and maybe literally the million dollar yeah, question not 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 for sports teams not not million dollar question for sports teams um but for some organizations we work with yes uh so here's what we know um and I, i'm very very straightforward with with everybody we talk to and the the sports guys really appreciate it that this isn't a you know for lack of a better term this isn't a little tech dork coming in and selling something uh, that he's never been on a foot, he or she has never been on a football field before, so they don't really know how it works, right? So, I come in with a, we, our team, me in particular, since I started this thing, I come in with a very, very objective, you know, football lens to this, and I don't uh, mess around with them. Um, so here's what we know: we tell them, hey, the academic research says this works. Uh, it is more effective on your brain than traditional uh, 2D learning. Film, PowerPoint, reading, X's and O's, uh, whatever it is. That's right? a good start. So, We're academics. Yeah. You're talking to three academics. Yeah. We believe that yeah. academic research is a good start to prove effectiveness. Yeah. yeah. So, so the academic research says it works. Um, additionally, uh, we're working with X number of teams, so other teams believe in this. You can talk to players that have used this stuff. Uh, you you know your players do visualization and other things uh, to help them prepare. This is another form of that. It's visualization on steroids, right? Uh, so all of the research says that, that this will work on the brain. Um, here's what we're not going to promise. We're not going to promise you're going to go to the Super Bowl. We're not going to promise that this is going to make you not throw an interception all season, right? <laughs> so you know, we're not, don't, don't think that if you buy, buy Striver, you are going to win four more games this year. Uh, so it's your decision whether or not you think this fits in to how you do things in your organization, your coaches, your players, your strength staff, your data, you know, et cetera. Um, so we're just very candid about that. And now it's really interesting, Eric, because 
we're, we're three years in and we still have people asking, asking us, well, how does it, how is it used? How do people use it? Um, and we're like, guys, this isn't rocket science. Like it, it, to us, it's obvious. <laughs> we know they've called around about us and, and they're still asking that question. So for us, this is more of a, you know, change management and training transformation uh, company than it is a tech company. Uh, the tech is really important, but you know, laying out the plan for how they can integrate this into their routine and make it really effective, honestly, is is 70% of the battle. Uh, so that's what most of the conversations come down to. Derek, this is Adi Weiner. I- I'm going to bring you back to more square one. Uh, so one of the difficulties I imagine people have in understanding what it's used for is what does it actually look like? So can you describe it? To yep. to a novice, and I mean, I've never played football really at any level. So, but I've watched a lot of it. And what does it look like to, to be in this virtual reality machine? Since it's not CGI, you it, yep. people don't react to what you're doing. Uh, it's got to be some sort of video based. But what does it look like? So the the best form of what we do, if if a team really buys in to creating a library of of uh, plays and content the quote unquote right way. Uh, which may involve stopping practice, doing a walkthrough, um, you know, kind of choreographing and scripting out what you want to put in there, um, is you literally will be standing, feel as if you're standing right where the quarterback would stand or right where the linebacker would stand. Uh, you you have your eyes as if you were standing right there. And, but uh, you can't down. move. So, Yeah, yeah, but, but that's okay. Um, and, and here's why. Uh, a quarterback... Uh, 90% of what he needs to know is pre-snap. So a lot of these guys, they have made a decision of where they're going to go with the ball before the ball's even snapped, and they're not moving before the snap, right? So a lot of it is identifying pressures, protection, where a blitz could come from. All right, in the first .5 of a second, what do I see? What would I do? Um, so that's super important. Also with that, uh, if you watch – you know what you guys just—you just watched your own quarterback in the Super Bowl. You know, hit Nick and and uh, and one of the best across the way. Like those guys, when they're in the pocket, they're not really moving that much. They kind of sit in this little one to two yard halo, right? So the fact that you quote unquote can't move in VR—that's okay. We have guys that that simulate their footwork. They they figure out what it's like to you know they they go through the most physical mechanics of what it would be like in the pocket, and it's you know, 96% effective on the brain and, you know, 70% effective on the body uh, going at 10%. Yeah, Derek, maybe just following up on our question, is it like a helmet cam? Like how was the actual video collected? Right. So we just, we just put a 360 degree camera on a tripod uh, and we keep it very steady. So when, when, when a team choreographs and, and scripts out and takes the time to, to put in what they would do, without worrying about, you know, getting 100 practice reps, we plop the tripod down right there, and they're doing, like, a simulated walkthrough around this camera of, of the position that they want to simulate for. Uh, putting on a tripod on a helmet would make – it would shake and move so much that it would make someone nauseous and make them want to throw up. So when, we do, when we're trying to film something live, audit to your question about, you know, what, what other way – how else could it look if it's not perfect – um, we will sometimes put the camera like behind the play um, or right behind the player. And I don't want to get into the technical details of how practice drills are run, but you know there are t- areas where we could put the camera five yards off the behind the player where he's never going to run into it. And so it's not a perfect viewpoint of exactly that first-person view, 
but it's pretty pretty dang close. Um, and we have some software tricks where if you lean your body in and out, the, the scene will zoom in or out with you, um, and we can make it pretty pretty close to a, a legit simulation. So, bottom line is is when you watch film, you see everything. You see all 22 guys. That's not what players actually see on the field. So we're giving them a more realistic view, or in some cases, a borderline identical view to what they would actually see on the field, and that's what makes it effective on the brain. But this is, a, of course, a simulated defense, for example. This is not the actual opposition. It's your own team putting together what, what their opponents might look like. Correct. It's not game film. Uh, that, that would be the holy grail um, of what, we're, what right. we're trying to do. And it'll, it'll get there one day. There's a few pieces of technology out there um, that are – that are uh, taking steps towards that. So we do, you know, players are looking at everything that they would look at in practice. Um, And you know what? Like we get a lot of pushback from coaches. Well, I, this isn't valuable unless it's game film. Uh, Okay. Well, that's not possible. So let's just set that aside and let's focus on what is possible. Um, And then I'm, I'm pretty adamant. I'll, I'll push back and say, well, what we're doing here, guys, is we're multiplying the practice reps and you're okay with a scout defense in practice. So why aren't you okay with it in here? We're, we're, we're multiplying that an infinite number of times. So we should just stop running scout team in practice if that's the problem. And they, they usually look at me and go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, you know, there, there, there's <laughs> that's a, good. Yeah, you have to respectfully push. And it, it helps that I know how that world works. And I can, you know, look them in the eye and say, yeah, we went through that at Stanford when we tested it. And here's what we did. And, and that, that carries a lot of weight. So this, so this is Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Derek Belch. Derek is the CEO and co-founder of Striver, a company that uses VR to improve performance of individuals, corporations, and sports teams. If you have a question for Derek, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Now, Derek, obviously we have football on the brain because just of the Super Bowl. We're sitting here in Philadelphia. But, of course, as I just read, you guys work with corporations and others and lots of sports teams, not just in football. Let's make a transition now, if you don't mind, to the Olympics. Obviously, the Winter Olympics. Olympics are starting in the next day or so. Um, could you tell us what you at Striver are doing with the Olympics, with which sports, and you know how is it going? Sure. So we, we've been working with the the USC team um, for quite a while uh, under the radar, obviously about a year and a half. And uh, again, same same with football. They, they came to us with a problem, uh, and they said we can only see the mountain, uh, whether it's a you know the Olympic competition or whether it's just a World Cup event or like a, you know, a monthly event that we would have. We don't get very many uh, reps on the mountains that we're going to ski, especially for the Olympics where they, they only see the mountain once over a four-year period. That's all they're allowed to, to do. Um, so they said, you know, there's so much decision-making that people don't realize as far as where your eyes go on a gate and, you know, the reaction time of <clears throat> and how you would maybe uh, take your head and eyes through a scene, the, the lighting conditions you may encounter – all these things add up to fractions of a second. So they asked us if we could do something for them. Uh, candidly, we, we were we were a little skeptical. Uh, you know, the only we tried a lot of different uh, ideas of how we thought we could do this to make the scene steady, so it wouldn't be a camera on the helmet going down and make you want to lose your lunch. Um, ultimately, that's the only way that it was possible, and, and we put some unique post processing in there. Uh, the ski team also uh, helped us by implementing it in different ways, uh, having the, the, the athletes, you know, in conjunction with their ski simulator, look at the simulation. So they, they physically were kind of moving a little bit to match the speed of the video. Um, and they, you know, they, they've been using it for the last year plus. 
uh, and, and the data has shown hundreds of repetitions uh, of, you know, what they're going to see in some of these events. So we're, we're very excited to see how it unfolds uh, later this month. Is there any reason why, I assume the answer would be, you're not just saying this from a business point of view, there's no reason this should be isolated to skiing, right? It could be, it could be used for lots and lots of different sports, I would imagine. Uh, so y- yes and no. Um, here's where the, the reality check comes in. <laughs> uh, again, you know, what, where, where does it make sense where we can, uh, where you're doing something that you otherwise couldn't do in the real world? Um, that's where VR really is impactful. And I don't, you know, I just don't think uh, the half pipe for snowboarding, there's nothing there. Um, you know, cross-country skiing, okay, we're, uh, we're traversing over a long distance. Um, I don't know how many relevant simulated decision-making moments there are in, in that type of endurance event. Um, but for downhill, so those are just two examples. Bicycling, maybe. Way. I don't know if this is, I mean, for long races, but... Yeah, maybe. Um, but, those but downhills yeah, like, are really treacherous. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but think about, and this is what we do every time we think about whether we want to work with somebody. Um, or we want to help frame for them how to think about it. Uh, you know, think about where, you know, what sports have very high impact decision-making moments um, where, you know, like the ski team problem, that they, they can't see a course where there's mental uh, repetition and decision-making is very, very important. Or maybe, Derek, as you second. said, you know, if you, I mean, I assume the following is true, similar to football, if you... The more you ski at really high speeds during practice, the more chance you have of injury. So just connecting that to football, you don't want to practice too much because of injury concerns. Maybe there's an opportunity to think about sports in that way. Is that a useful way to think about it at all? That, that, that is certainly another uh, another way to think about it, yeah. Um, and then, well, then the last one for me is, is how is the sport actually played in the real world? So like with football – you know, you, everyone starts from a static position, and a, a quarterback can pretend he's standing right there on the line like he really would stand. A linebacker can get down in the stance, and he's seeing exactly what he would see in VR as he would in the real world. So with skiing, same thing. They're, they're getting in a skiing stance, a crouch, um, on a balance disc on their ski simulator, and they're kind of in the same physical position they would be in when they're skiing. You know, uh, figure skating and snowboarding and other things, you're just not going to – be in that same physical position because those are very, very fluid sports. Um, so that's but, kind of the big one for us. So, yeah, so something like basketball or hockey, you, probably you'd never really be able to have an impact because it's so continuous and you have to be so adaptive with what's happening. But baseball, you could imagine baseball, uh, right? Baseball, is, is, virtual hitting simulators are yeah. a phenomenal use case. Um, unfortunately, for real video purposes, the tech is not quite there because the headset isn't isn't quite clear enough yet. To, you know, for that little white ball to look perfect, which the hitter's eye is very trained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the majority of the baseball applications right now are of the video game variety, and, and they're they're just okay. So it's been a little slow uh, to be adopted on that side. So I have a so you've prepared our ski team. I say our the United States ski team. Is the competition doing the same thing? I mean, what, where, where is it? Uh, yeah, um, not to my knowledge. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it hasn't been in the news, so maybe they are, um, but not to my knowledge. So we will, you know. We're expecting again, great I, success from the United States ski team then, I well, would guess. So, so here, yeah, here you go. It's like, just like we tell the football teams, uh, 
you know, don't expect a gold medal just because they're doing this, right? Right. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is another tool in the tool belt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are not the reason for anyone's success or failure. Well, with uh, Schifrin and Vaughn, you guys are backing some good horses, let me just say. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, if, if, it, if it works out and there's some – there's some really awesome performance, and someone wants to give us a quote. You know, we'll we'll take it. Uh, just like we saw earlier this year with with Case Keenum of the Minnesota Vikings, you know, talking publicly about uh, the thousands of reps he took in VR. Um, you know, we'll, if someone wants to publicly say that this is a big part of their uh, preparation, then we'll we'll take it. Otherwise, we we just you know we're, we're just another tool in the tool belt. So, okay Derek, so we've been talking to Derek Belch for the last 20, 25 minutes about Striver and the work they're doing in VR. So, Derek, we've been talking about the past. Let's now spend our last couple minutes talking about the future. So what do you see both in terms of the future of technology and what do you see both in terms of the future of use cases at Striver? So the, te- the tech, let's start with the tech. That's a very interesting question. On the one hand, you know, the sky's the limit with where this can go. Um, on the other hand, you know, it, it's been three, three plus years, almost four years since Facebook bought Oculus. Uh, there's been, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars invested into the hardware and software side at, at some really big companies. And, uh, you know, we're fur- further along than we were a few years ago, but not that much further. Uh, that the, you know, we're still waiting on what Magic Leap's going to release to the wild on the AR side. Um, you know, Oculus has released their consumer version last year, and it, it's uh, it's better than the original prototype, and future iterations will be better. But there hasn't been anything earth-shattering on the hardware side in, in the last couple of years. Um, so I expect incremental changes to hardware over the next three, four, five years that, you know, in, in five to ten years, we're going to see very, very seamless hardware, uh, but don't expect it to happen overnight. So, you know, really... Uh, again, it, it's about change management. It's about changing culture around what you do for training more than it is about, you know, this revolutionary hardware that's going to come out and be a, a panacea. Well, let me ask you um, a question related to that. You okay. talked about the business side of things. Which For Striver, um, which one are you more excited about the future? Is it the work that you guys are doing with sports teams or the work that you guys are doing with corporations or yeah. both? Yep. Yeah, so that that was your second question. What 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 are we looking for for Striver? And I was just going to uh, say what you just said, which is um, the latter. We are we are putting a lot of emphasis on the corporation side. Um, obviously, a lot bigger market. This is a business show. Um, you know, we could kill it in sports, and that would be, what, 10, 15, $20 million revenue opportunity. We could kill it in the enterprise, and it, it's 10, 20, 30x that, right, um, or more. So, the, our work with the Walmarts, the Fidelities, the BMWs, you know, the, the, the companies that um, have real deep training needs at scale where this stuff can save them a lot of money, that is where the majority of our time and effort is going into growing. Um, all of that said, we're not forgetting sports. Sports is, is a critical part of our DNA, and we learn so much every day with what we do with the athletes that we can apply to the enterprise space. But Certainly, as far as you know, where is this company going to grow? Uh, the enterprise is, is the play. Well, we will definitely need you back on to talk about enterprise, but maybe just in the last minute or two we have, Derek, can you tell us what would be the most exciting example of the use of Striver and VR that you guys have implemented for a corporation and a business decision or a you know a business use case? So the Walmart, um, you know, the Walmart work we're doing, which has been in the news a lot, has been 
awesome. Uh, you know, whenever, whenever we're showing people, you know, here's some football plays and they get really excited. And then oh, here's your, now you're in a Walmart store. Not as cool. <laughs> um, you know, a little, a little more boring, um, but, but super impactful. And if you think about, you know, the way that they train people, uh, employees, associates, they're not going to walk 30 associates through the store and set up all these simulations and, and, and exercises in front of paying customers. That, that, that's a bad look, right? They, they just don't have, they don't have time or resources or the ability to do that when a store is open 24 hours a day. So super that, that stuff to us is super exciting. And then we, we, we're doing a lot with safety and manufacturing and identifying errors and hazards and things that, you know, the, the basic mistakes on the factory floor that cost people limbs, uh, sometimes cost them their life, uh, certainly cost, you know, production delays with, with automobiles to the tune of, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year, stuff that, that you would be shocked as to how basic some of these errors are that people just don't have enough time to be trained on. Um, so can we train them more effectively to reduce uh, physical and, and dollar um, and economic errors uh, to, to, to provide really, really high ROI in a lot of different ways. So that, that stuff gets us super pumped. Uh, it's very different than, than you know, football plays, <laughs> which is about the sexiest thing that, that, that you could ever do as a business. Um, really different, but, but certainly um, just as exciting in its own way. Well, Derek, I think you may have just booked yourself a trip to Philadelphia because we have a retailing center here, and I'm going to tell you we're going to have you come in and talk about the application of VR and retailing very, very soon. I will be in contact sure. with you very soon. We'll take it. Yeah. So, so we've been talking to Derek Belch. Derek is the CEO and co-founder of Striver, a company who uses VR to improve performance of individuals, corporations, and sports teams. Uh, Derek, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks, Derek. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks. Uh, so this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball, but everybody knows a game has four quarters, and so does Wharton Moneyball. So stay with us. We'll be talking more football, more sports. Please join us again after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm with my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner from the statistics department. Some combination of the three of us and our co-host, Cade Massey, are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, live and th- replayed throughout the week. And you can listen to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us at W Moneyball on Twitter. And of course, you can always email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I was actually expecting, thanks to our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back from music, but I was almost expecting Fly Eagles Fly. I was expecting, you know, that to yeah, be. Yeah, I the... haven't heard that song enough in the last few yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, I was at the Sixer game last night, and the Eagles offensive lineman was there, and there may have been more Eagles, uh, let's call it, discussion and, you know, through the loudspeaker at the stadium than there was the Sixers, and there was an actual basketball game going on last night, which was kind of interesting. But I wanted to stay with uh, football for just a few minutes in our last half hour, and then we'll transition. I would like to talk about basketball as well. Um, A lot of people say, uh, I'd like to ask your opinion from a statistical perspective, that there's this Super Bowl slump. For example, um, nobody has won back-to-back Super Bowls since the Patriots did so in 2004. There's been, you know, whatever, 15 opportunities for a repeat champion. There has not. From a statistical perspective, 
Maybe the outcome isn't just, did you win the Super Bowl again? Because, you know, we've talked about there's coin flipping and there's randomness. If one wanted to figure out, let's call it in the language of marketing, there's kind of negative state dependence, meaning given that you've won, there's maybe a less chance that you've won. No. All right. So how do you guys? No, no. So you said no. How should we as sports fans and statisticians think about the serial dependence of outcomes across seasons? How should we think about well, it? Well, it's interesting because what I did with my, my class yesterday, they, they oh, wanted great. to know why is it that the Eagles are already the not the favorite for winning next year? Great question. And, and, and so the, the first question you have to ask is you have to, you know, the concept was regression to the mean. So a team that has won 13 is expected to regress their, their number of wins Pretty down Pretty heavily, down to about 11, right? It's actually, I think it would, I don't know what it exactly is, but I would guess it's, it's more than 211. I would guess it's probably more to closer to 10 or and a half. Well, one of the things um, we do know, we know the mean is eight. Yeah. Yes, right? we do. But what's the correlation? And yeah. that, that tells you the amount of how much shrinkage so you So you're saying it's green. almost halfway back. I was making I, it a little less than halfway, but I it would could guess be. It's, no, and, and so one of the things that's interesting is how, and how you do this. So one thing you could do is look at the Patriots year-to-year correlation, and it's probably much uh, higher than, than the Eagles. So in other much. words, much higher. So that the amount of shrinkage towards the mean for the Patriots is less because their year-to-year correlation is higher. The Eagles have a more higher year-to-year correlation, a lower year-to-year correlation, more variance, and therefore you shrink them more down to the mean. And it becomes very simple to explain why the Eagles have less of a chance. And I, I mean, I, I think also looking throughout NFL history, there have been lots of Super Bowl, lots of teams that have made it to repeat Super Bowl. Several teams that made have won. it. Some won, some not. So, I mean, well, I mean, maybe more in the last fifteen years, it's only been once. But uh, but there was opportunity. I mean, the you're Pat- talking about the Seahawks, right? The Seahawks and the well, the well, Seahawks and now. the Patriots so now, now have had a chance. Came within a very goal, close. Came within a play of of winning back to back Super Bowls. Um, and and going back. Throughout history, you know, there's been a lot more. I mean, the 49ers. Cowboys, the Steelers. Packers, I believe. Uh, you know, so. Yeah, way have, back in time. There have been Absolutely. A, a lot. I, I just think, you know, being to the Super Bowl means you are an above-average team, and you are probably next year going to be an above-average team. It, it The slump just speaks, I think, this I it's, it's really hard to get to the Super Bowl, you know, if you're not the Patriots. And so, um, I think... We're really kind of more talking about just sort of how difficult that achievement is. And, yeah, it is difficult to do that in back-to-back seasons. But I don't think there's an actual slump where somehow a team, having been to the Super Bowl, then performs below our expectations the next year. How would you, Unless the expectation no, so how, is calibrated at going to the Super Bowl the next wrong. year. Too high. Well, that was, that was what yeah. I was going to ask you next. So as Eagles, for people that are Eagles yeah. fans— what are kind of a, you know, if one was going to build a model for the expected outcomes in the 2018-19 season, also thanks to our producer Matt Datz for reminding me, one of the disadvantages, of course, of winning the Super Bowl is from the Eagles' position is that they did come in first in their division, which means they do play a slightly harder schedule yep. than they do last year. And that, by the way, I'm not and saying that's going to explain all dra- of the mean reversion. They have a light, slightly lower draft pick They have a slightly lower, well, much well. lower in this case. They have a slightly older quarterback. Well, well, that well, could be I mean, a good thing like... if Carson Wentz is the quarterback. Well, exactly. It's another meant, thing I mean, of it's experience. Probably, it's probably a worse thing for the, for the Patriots and a better thing for the Eagles. I think that's probably, just on age curves, just on that's average. probably... Looking at those two teams specifically, sure. I yeah. mean, the, the Eagles have to actually figure out well, what they're doing. Well, let's also, let's, let's talk about that <laughs> that's next. That's going to be an interesting question. So, the Patriots, 
you know, ha- you know, with whatever six, seven weeks in the season, made a decision to trade what many people thought was going to be the future of the Patriots. You know, it could be five years from now. Brady looks great to me. It could be three years, two years. Who knows? They traded Jimmy Garoppolo, or as I call him, the undefeated quarterback in the NFL. Um, the Eagles are going to have a decision to make. Nick Foles is under contract for next year. Um, what do you do if you're the Eagles now that Nick Foles? I mean, does Nick they have Foles to trade him? They have to trade. They have to trade. Him. So tell us the logic and the thinking well, behind that. His value is never bench higher. A Super Bowl winning. He's the MVP of the Super Bowl. And what's the other scenario? Carson Wentz comes back and you don't play him. But what if Carson, Carson Wentz, Wentz comes back and then you bench back? Foles? What if Carson Wentz? You know, maybe he's not. I mean, do you trade him now when the value is never higher, or you say, look? Maybe Nick, maybe Carson Wentz is back fully healthy by the start of the season. But this isn't okay. the Patriots. Let me, let me yeah. finish. This isn't the Patriots. If the Eagles start out zero and three, zero and four, they may not come back and make the playoffs at all. So what? Without the argument of keeping Foles until you're confident okay. at least that Wentz is going to come you, back. What is the what are the uh Prognost- prognostics for the recovery for this injury. Well, I mean, they're How talking. But they're talking. I mean, he. It, I think it's. He they're talking surgery, about yeah. him being at least fifty percent likely to be ready for the start of training camp, right? And so, that's not so high. I mean, no, that's true. No, I mean, there's a good shot that they have to have somebody besides Carson Wentz play the first couple games of the NFL season. season, right? And that, right. as, and if we just map that out, I'm not saying it's true, but if you map out, let's imagine the expected win percent. Let's say it's the first four games, right. and the expected wins go from three to one and a half in those. Well, that one and a half wins could affect getting home field advantage, yep. which could affect, A, the most important thing that Shane Jensen always says, you may have an extra coin flip because you may play an extra game now. So to me, you know, if you map out that one and a half win difference, if it was, to winning the Super Bowl, you may have cut your odds in half yeah. because you have to play an extra football game. I will game. just point out that Nick Foles' value currently is not going to get any higher. I, I, I agree he with can't that. get any higher than this. Let's talk. What and, he... and he is, we all can admit, a relatively high variance quarterback. Sure. So I mean, maybe we he's figured well, it all that, out and is a Hall of Famer now, you only or have maybe he'll go back to be mediocre. You have him tied up for a year, so you can't get. It's not like he has a four-year contract. They also he get, sort of does. So let me say what his they con- have let a cap. Let me say consequences. Yeah, let me say too. three things that relates to your question. Yeah. First of all, thanks to our producer Matt Dat. So um, Nick Foles' surgery, sorry, not Carson Wentz's surgery was on December thirteenth. It's normally a nine-month recovery from that, so that brings you to September, September mm-hmm. which. That's the start of the season. That's a nine-month recovery under best case. That's number one. Um, Number two, Nick Foles has an interesting contract. So he signed a five-year contract last year. Obviously, this is year one. Next year's year two. But if he's on the roster, as I read, if he's on the roster next year, he can void the next three years of the contract. So it's really, it's like a five-year deal, but it's really a two-year deal. Now, the question is, can that contract be ported to another team? Like, if they trade him, does that void still happen and another team's trading for him for just one year? But what do you guys realistically think? Remember, Garoppolo, who people were like, this guy's the next coming of greatness, and he's not 29, he's maybe 24, 25. They got, what, a second rounder? Mm-hmm. So, so what do you get for Nick Foles? I don't think enough. Um. So is it a third rounder? Yeah. Second, third rounder. Third rounder. That's not enough. Yeah, to me, that's not enough. Not enough also because of the, the the emotional ties and the city just loves these kind of things and Yeah, but I mean, think of the think what are you setting yourself up for? 
when Carson Wentz comes back, it's going to be a huge controversy. Well, that's the question. Is more uh, so? I think we there's going to be agree. a lot less teams looking for quarterbacks in game three or four. Huh. <laughs> Maybe there will a, be less, a team but, with an injury. But there'll be a team with an injury. There'll be a team that's doing badly with their current quarterback. I think this it'll is be... well. Let's wait. This is an absolutely fascinating issue. I mean, that... I mean, we, we, we the, the Patriots only got a second rounder for Garoppolo. The Which argument is they should have traded him earlier, yes. and they would have gotten a higher. So that that's one example of how your your actual value goes conditional on you having to. Because we why, all agree so they well, have well, to trade him eventually. Let me right? just let me just pick it. Why would he have gotten more if they had traded him in the, over the off season? Well, because that team would have gotten more Garoppolo. Yeah, they've gotten more of right? him. I mean, they would have gotten more it's, games. It's really, they got him for how many years? What's what? What did they get him? No, he's a free agent. Now. Oh, he's a free agent now. Yeah. Right? So, so they got very and and, and we're just talking about this right. weird contract. Nick right. Foles could potentially be a free, right. agent, free agent after and so the now, season. Are you going to trade him for ten games? He doesn't know your system. You right, know I everything understand. else. Yeah, you can do. Uh, you know, the value plummets. But look, right, at the end so, of the day, though. If you believe, because we I, agree, they have to trade him, right? Eventually, I mean, that, well, it's just whether they let me just say they the, keep him and trade Carson Wentz. No, <laughs> they're not trading Carson Wentz. Of course but what not. you could do is you could say, look, we're going to maximize our window of winning as many Super Bowls as we can. We'll, I'll make this up. We'll overpay Nick Foles. We'll pay him stars. We'll pay him the same money we're pay, We'll pay him twenty five million dollars a year to be the backup for a couple Wait, of years. You're going to take the Super Bowl MVP and you're going to put him on the bench. Yes, he's gonna. He's you gonna might, be okay and, with that. Uh, I don't know. That's that, uh, that's come on, the magic guys. Question. I mean, this is not an analytical argument. Just basic human psychology. You're gonna bench the Super Bowl MVP. Uh, it's not gonna happen. I don't know. I don't know. That's, I mean, Nick Foles had a lot of trouble for a few years, and he remembers it well. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, guys. What, I mean, did he have a magical transformation? I mean, really? He well, did, no, remember, he had remember, a magical run. Let's remember okay. he also had maybe one of the greatest seasons in the history of the NFL. People forget his in season fourteen, right, where he had twenty-seven touchdowns and two interceptions. Yeah. Let me just say, by the way, so it's not like he's he a streaky had, dude. Yeah, as it turns like out, had, right? It's not like he had no success. Um, but again, uh, it's an, it'll be an interesting discussion. So, guys, I want to transition to basketball for a second and. Two topics I wanted to talk about in basketball. The first one was, so I was at the Sixer game last night. Sixers beat the Wizards. Sixers look good, all of that kind of stuff. But they also have games where they look, you know, they're a 500 team. I mean, that is the data. They're 26 and 25. They're a 500 team. Some of the time they look great. Some of the times they look not so great. They lose to teams they shouldn't. They beat good teams. As a statistician, let's imagine I come up with two theories or two models for how the Sixers behave. One is... They're a 50-50 team with high variance, or the other is that they're a bimodal team with a 20% Sixers and an 80% Sixers, and we just observe each of those half of the time. I was thinking about that on the way in this morning. Could we ever have enough data or enough, let's call it statistical modeling to say, is it, let's call it a unimodal distribution, they're 50-50 with high variance, or it's literally a bimodal distribution where some of the time they play like the 20% Sixers, win percentage. Some of the time they play like the 80%. Are it, they flipping between the two modes? Well, that's like what I'm asking. Well, well, hold on. Or if, if there's correlation, if, if if it's something like a hidden Markov type situation. Yeah, there's the situa- hot sixers and the cold no, we know. sixers. So then, then you can separate out those things, right? Because then you can kind of just sort of look at their streakiness, essentially. Do they sort of like, when they win, are they winning kind of in streaks and then losing in streaks? Or are they just sort of, you the, know, the randomly right, winning and losing? The right way you'd look at it is the opponents they play. An 80% sixer can beat a tough top team. A 50% sixer can't. 
So you just look. You have to do a power ranking, and you and and then use that as the underlying statistic, and then you look at the at essentially this well, mark chain enough, going well, through. Well, I, I, Unfortunately, I think there's enough variation in actual game outcomes that I'm not sure well, you need to Well, that's what I'm asking. How much yeah, signal yeah. is there? Yeah. How much noise is there? You have to build a likelihood function, and then you you solve it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, do you guys have any sense? Because last night's game, I became, I've now become convinced. Maybe Are they is, a streaky team? I don't, yes. I, I yes, think they're my, an extraordinarily streaky team. My then they're priors. probably bimodal. My prior, what, I mean, that's what, you, your, what are your priors? My prior bimodal. is that is, 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 you yeah. believe that in bimodality in basketball? Because well, you don't really are the Cavaliers this bad? Well, the Cavaliers just don't play hard. Well, that's the bad. There, there we go. But there's Bimodality. an explanation. But why would the Sixers not play hard? I don't know that the Sixers don't play hard. Because it's tiring and the regular season doesn't matter. But well, they need it matters to, fight, to them. They need to they're, fight for the playoffs. They're in the eighth spot right now. Well, okay. They have a half but... game lead over nine. They should. And by the way, let me just say, by the way, this was the second top I was going to talk about was Cleveland. I mean, Cleveland's like a couple more losses away from being out of the playoffs. I mean, they have but 20... But under bimodality, they know they can turn it on when they need to. How much do you want to bet Cleveland's going to be in the playoffs at the end of the season? Oh, I would need... Right? I would need we extraordinarily 20-to-1 odds against we Justin. We know Maybe more that than they're just going to gonna turn it on when they need to. And now they currently do not need to. And but the Sixers, of course, the are in Sixers a different. The Sixers are in a position. different position and situation. What would you give for the Sixers making it? One better, one better than fifty percent. Better than fifty percent right now. Uh, the Sixers actually have had one of the. By the way, if you look at a couple things, you mentioned about opponents. Sixers have had one of the toughest schedules uh, so far this season, just by win percentage of opponents. It gets a lot easier. They're one of. They're not one of the few teams. It's probably fifty fifty. Um, They've had many more road games than they've had home games already this season. Mm. So I think right now they're back to a minus three. I think they've played three more road games than they have home games. But for most of the season, it was like six or seven more road games than home games. So I think given that they're above 500 and they're in the eighth spot right now, I think I'm feeling pretty good. And um, they haven't played most of their game. Not they played most, but not all of their games with Joel Embiid. They're best player in my view and he seems he's now playing back-to-back games that happened for the first time as you guys may remember they never played him his first two seasons in back-to-back games he's now going to play we hope every game for the rest of the season they're uh you know I think eight or nine games above 500 with Joel Embiid in the lineup and six or seven below with him out of the lineup. So Gee, it sounds almost like they're a bimodal team. But we, that's where different we can explain due to injury. The two modes. That's, 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 that's a pretty, pretty, that's a but speaking pretty good of explanation injuries, for bimodality. I, I also wanted to talk to you about how a potential injury can change a franchise. So I don't know if you guys saw last night, but unfortunately, uh, as growing up as a Knicks fan, an absolutely horrible injury happened last night. The best player in the Knicks, Christos Porzingis, their seven foot two, seven foot three center tore his ACL and is out for, well, in basketball. nine months, probably more. At least nine months. Basically, you're saying this is affecting your franchise for the next at least two years. Yeah, at least real bummer. two years. So how do teams, not just when they're drafting players, but like how do you change your mentality? Like from a drafting point of view, what do you do now? Do you tank? Hopefully go into a worse draft spot? Like start just playing your younger players now? Because there is no future for this season and maybe no future for next season for the next. I'm not saying they couldn't go on a winning streak, make the playoffs, but what do you do from a drafting point of view? If your goal is to maximize future number of championships, let's say. I mean, I think just based on the evidence and I think you tank, right? I mean, you, you just, you tank. I mean, Well, I, where are they? 
they're probably in the 10 or 11 spot. Matt's going to tell me exactly where they're. Ah, 11th. Hey, I got it right. And so how, they're in the 11th so spot, how, but probably four I mean, or five what, games what's, behind what's, the. Uh, what, what's their, this their likely yeah, seed in the yeah, draft? Yeah, well, exactly. In the well, lottery. Right now, unfortunately, they're in that no man zone, which the Sixers were in for a while. What I, I well, there are no, no. I know they're 11th in the East. We're saying that overall, overall in the NBA, overall, oh, 11th teams. also. He's saying 11th well, also. So that's see that. I so hate to how say far it. are they from getting to the top three? Because no, 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 the they're not ones... going to be in the top three. So There's some you, really I mean, well, maybe if they go two and 30 the rest of the season, I'm sure they can accomplish their mission. Maybe of getting into <laughs> and the then top have three. Yeah, but correspondingly, picks. what's you know. What's their upside of winning games, losing, not losing your fan base? I mean, there's all kinds of issues. To oh not... my goodness! If the Knicks fan, the Knicks fan base is going to give up the team right now, <laughs> I, I don't after know the last gonna, like listen, twenty years or whatever. It's I very mean, disheartening I think... for Philadelphians to uh, to see year after year the Sixers just get crushed. Yeah, I mean the Sixers were way more legitimately tanking though. So. As you guys are thinking about, maybe we'll just transition to our last topic for today. Um, as you guys are looking at both, you know, the Eagles franchise and other teams, like where do you see? You know, there's been a lot uh, has a lot of credit has been given. You, matter of fact, you were telling me you were reading an article on five thirty eight about how the Eagles were built into a champion. A lot In of unbelievably credit, rapid time, and a lot of credit's been given to Howie Roseman for bringing in players at various positions. Where do you guys see? Let's even say, let's take, let's start with the team that played great but didn't win the Super Bowl, the Patriots. Where do they need to improve? If you guys were looking at the game, I mean, maybe you could say in every position but quarterback, but um, where do you see their Defense, meeting? maybe. Maybe a little bit of improvement to defense, specifically well, we never talked about this. Why? I mean, I still don't know that we'll ever know exactly why Malcolm Butler didn't play in the game. That, that is but a mystery. It's and they like, certainly missed Dante Hightower, their best linebacker, who was out for the entire season. And, of course, Cooks, who got knocked out in the middle of the game, did not help them as well. Maybe they could have scored even more points than they scored already that's true but you so you would say defense i think defense should be a priority i mean i, I they are going to i mean they're going to get edelman back in the receiver I, I mean i think their offense will be fine especially now that apparently josh mcdaniel's going to stay on as offensive coordinator i think clearly defense is where they're going to have to focus most of their offseason energy and what about what about for the eagles what do you think Gotti? what did you what did you see i mean it's not like they were a defensive juggernaut in that game although it's hard to tell you're just playing brady you know they were great against the vikings they were great against every it might just be brady so one of the yeah. things that, one of the things that neil Payne reported in his yeah. article in 538 was that the Eagles have one of the all-time highest sort of average draft pick or adjusted draft pick on its current team. So in other words, they went out and acquired people who were on the rocks a little bit, but had drafted were drafted very, very high position. Oh. And they essentially made a, a, what we Argument would call for a, a, a Bayesian forecast. They said, you're just essentially taking people who did not have a c- good opening couple years of their careers, but their projections were very, very high, and we'll expect them to kind of, if you will, regress back to their original projections. And, and they also made a, a claim that the coaching system for Philadelphia really could help them out and that they were not done well by whatever team that they were uh, contracted and playing for. And so I would see. I, I mean, I think we're going to see more of the same. I think. I think the Eagles are going to use are going to try to pick up players that other other teams have undervalued. It's really an int- actually what you just mentioned is a strategy I've not heard much about, which is in some sense I hate to put it this way, but as a statistician, kind of put less weight on the data and put more weight on the prior and the trajectory, and say, know. you know, look, there's obviously a risk in doing that because the data is let's call it NFL data projections are projections based on college data but it's certainly an interesting strategy i i don't i just don't know about this narrative 
isn't every NFL team in the history of the NFL taking chances on players that are undervalued by other teams, and then some of them go on to win the Super Bowl? It just might be undervalued as win. That's the question. Is is it? I mean, I, I don't. I mean, know I mean, every team. It sounds like something every team presumably is trying to do: take like players that are undervalued by other teams but and a, and, but, and build, bring them in because they might work better in your system. And then you know, a, for for one team that actually does result in an outcome. The only question is, what are you exactly looking at? And I'm sure every team that does it looks at different things. Yeah. Well, this has been Morton Moneyball. This has been two hours today. Again, we're here live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. This is Eric Bradley. I want to thank my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen and Adi Weiner. I want to thank our producer, Matt Datz. I want to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for being here today. And I want to thank both of our guests. It's obviously an extraordinarily big week here in Philadelphia. Tomorrow we have the Eagles Parade. Uh, we also have lots of other sports going on. We have the Olympics coming up starting tomorrow. I'm sure next week we're going to be talking about the Olympics. Olympics, many other sports. Between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your business, enjoy your statistics. This has been Wharton Moneyball.